This summer we've spent a lot of our time talking about prayer. Uh, what is prayer? Why do we pray? Uh, what is God's role in prayer? And in the last couple of weeks we've talked about praise and thanksgiving and uh, what it looks like to give those things to God. Uh, but today we're going to move in another direction, uh, similar uh, but a little bit different, and just asking more of a question of what do we pray for? And I thought there was no better passage to look at than the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' own words uh, giving us a model of what do we pray for. And yet I can't help but be a little bit nervous as I prepare to, uh, to teach from this because I think it's a passage that we have all heard or, or read very, uh, very much. We've heard it a lot. And... I remember myself growing up, you know, it was something we, we did every week. You know, he said, are you saying the Lord's Prayer? And I think that we tend to fall into one of two groups when it comes to a passage like this. We read it, and we go, oh yeah, I, I get it. Uh, good to go. Move on. Next thing. Or we look at it, and we go, I'm not really sure what he's talking about. But yeah, he wants us to pray. All right, move on. <laughs> But I think that it's good for us to, to sit and think about this passage for a little while because there's such a uh, wealth of insight here, really, for our prayer lives, but not just for our prayer lives, for the way we live and the things that we do. Uh, English theologian J.C. Ryle put it like this. He said, Perhaps no part of Scripture is so full and so simple at the same time as the Lord's Prayer. It contains the germ or the, the, the seed, the kernel, of everything which the most advanced saint, the most mature believer could ever desire. So I believe that God has much to say to us through these words in the Lord's Prayer, uh, whether that means this is your first time hearing it or you've heard it a thousand times. Uh, You see, Jesus' model for prayer points us to the kingdom, a kingdom that has been inaugurated by his coming uh, but is not yet here in full. And so if you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn to these familiar words of Jesus uh, found in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to start at verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. And it says, When you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have given us something to help guide us in our prayers, to guide us in our lives. I pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit now to hear your word, to receive your word, and to walk in the truth of your word so that you would be glorified and that we might find our greatest joy in that. And uh, I pray that you would speak clearly through me, truthfully, and I lift up all these requests to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to start in verses 9 and 10. Um, Up to this point, I'm kind of going to give a real quick summary of the verses before that. Basically, Jesus just outlines how not to pray. All right, he points out the, uh, the self-centeredness, really, of the hypocrites who want people to see them and, and look at them as they pray. And he points out the, really the low view of God that the uh, Gentiles have when they think that they need to offer up all these phrases for God to hear them. And so he says, don't pray like that. Instead, pray like this. And he starts out, we're going to look at this model uh, in two parts. He starts out with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The focus here as, is as it should be. It's on God. First off, hallowed be your name. In other words, may your name be kept holy. You see, in biblical times, a person's name stood for their reputation and their character. Uh, So this prayer really, this petition in the Lord's Prayer is asking for God's name to be kept holy, for his reputation to be known among all the people. Simply put, it's God be glorified as you should be. It's the fulfillment really of a prophetic word that we find in Ezekiel. Uh, We're going to look at Ezekiel a couple of times. Uh, You don't have to turn here, but in chapter 36, the prophet writes this. He says, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. What this passage shows us is that the people of Israel, in a sense, had unhallowed God's name. They'd failed to glorify God as he deserved. And in turn, the nations mocked and ridiculed the God of Israel. They saw him as weak, that he didn't really have much control over his people, and that really he was subservient or he was below their own gods because, well, they were able to conquer Israel. And yet, despite what the Israelites had done, despite their sin and their disobedience, and despite the way that the nations had mocked him, God declares, I'm going to make my name great. I am going to do this, not because of you, but for my glory. And we can relate, uh, can't we? We, tend, we seem to live in a time when God's name still needs to be vindicated. Uh, I remember uh, in college, kind of enduring the, the mockery and the ridicule, the jokes of my, my peers and my, all of my philosophy classes. God was a, a pretty good joke to them. Uh, I remember 
going, I, you know, I still, I go to the bookstores and I, and I see the sections, and it's ironic that it's so close to the religious sections, but these sections of books uh, with titles like God is Not Great uh, and The God Delusion. A lot of people think of God as a tyrant or a monster or even just a figment of our imagination. And while there's many people outside of the church who fail to hallow God's name, who fail to glorify him, we tend to struggle with this as well. Uh, Much like Israel, we tend to profane the name of the Lord. We're ambassadors to the world representing this God, representing his name, and yet we tend to do it kind of poorly. In his first letter, uh, Peter is telling the Christians to do certain things and to refrain from other things. And the reason for this, he says, is that they, meaning unbelievers, other people, would see your good deeds and glorify God. See your good deeds and hallow his name. But we need to remember that the opposite, the flip side of that is true. That they may see our bad deeds and mock the name of the Lord. So we should be asking ourselves questions like, how am I representing God? Am I glorifying him in the everyday matters of life? And we should be thinking, do the people of Pekin, the people of Peoria, Manitou, Glassford, this whole area, do the people around here glorify God? Do they see him as great and glorious and mighty, kind, loving, and merciful? And if they don't, this should be our prayer, that that would come true, that that would be true here. Oh Lord, may your name be kept holy. So we move then to the second petition. Your kingdom come. In other words, let your rule foretold in the prophets be established here. Now the people uh, in Jesus' time were waiting for God to establish this kingdom. Uh, Ever since the exile, really, uh, the Israelites had been under the control of some other group of people. And at this time, uh, the Israelites are under the control of the Romans. The Romans are the rulers around here. And so when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom, people's ears perk up and they start to get excited. They start to pay attention. And they think, oh, okay, you're going to be the one to oust the Romans. You're going to get rid of them and you're going to establish the throne in Jerusalem again. And we're going to be a great power. And yet, that's not what Jesus does. In fact, he dies on a cross, and it seems as though uh, he has been defeated rather than defeating anyone. Uh, But he rises again from the dead, and he conquers an enemy much greater than the Romans. Uh, Jesus defeats sin. He defeats the devil, and he defeats death itself. And instead of establishing some throne in uh, Jerusalem, Jesus ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of God in a heavenly throne. And he rules over his people there until the day when he returns and will establish his kingdom here. Uh, You see, as we read the New Testament, what's clear is that with the coming of Jesus, the promised kingdom has dawned in this world. And membership to that kingdom is open to any and to all who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ wholly. 
depending on his saving work on their behalf. And so this really is a, is a prayer for the advancement of the gospel, for more and more people to come to know and trust and submit themselves to Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom. And this really hits home when we start to think about friends and family and coworkers who don't know Jesus Christ. Perhaps this is a wake-up call to you and to me to begin praying for these people, to engage with them, asking them what they believe, and as opportunity provides a chance to share with them the truth of the gospel. But this is also a prayer for Christ to come again. Let your kingdom come. All right? We want Jesus to come back and establish that kingdom. The Bible tells us that he's going to return. Even though it doesn't tell us an exact time, a date, that he's going to come back, the fact is he is coming. <laughs> and when he comes, he will consummate or establish his kingdom in all of its fullness. And he will establish a kingdom in which all of his people, those who have trusted in him, they will live there, they will worship and find their greatest joy in him there for all eternity. All things will be renewed and there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. And yet even for those who fail to trust in Jesus Christ, there will be eternity as well. An eternity of God's wrath and condemnation in hell. And so with this petition in the prayer, we are really asking God not only to save us, that we are asking, we're saying we want to trust in Jesus Christ, we want to be in his kingdom. We're asking him to save many, many people in Pekin and Peoria and Illinois and this country and the world to be a part of his kingdom. And we're praying that he would come soon. And that brings us to the, the final petition here in the first part of the prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, to put it another way, may your plans and purposes be fulfilled and your people live in obedience here as it is in your heavenly throne room. Similar to the previous petition when we were talking about your kingdom coming, uh, this is a petition that says, uh, that it kind of is rooted in Ezekiel as well. Uh, and this comes r- fairly close to the other one. And Jesus, or uh, the prophet here says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will replace it with one of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. What Jesus was instructing the people here uh, in the Lord's Prayer and what he's really instructing us too is to pray for their own obedience to the calling that God has given them that they've received from their heavenly Father. Previously, in the time of Ezekiel, their disobedience and their idolatry had led them into exile, it, but it really exposed their hard hearts. And now, God promises to give them new hearts. He promises even his spirit within them. And it's in order that they might walk in obedience and fulfill his calling for them. Uh, I kind of am reminded of a movie called L.A. Confidential. I, I like police and detective movies and um, there's a character in this movie named Jack Vincennes. He's a police officer, and 
he's in this particular scene, he's sitting at a bar and there's a drink in front of him. He's holding a $50 bill and he's just kind of staring at this, this $50 bill, contemplating what his life has been up to this point. Uh, in fact, up to this point in the movie, he has been involved in taking bribes from uh, other people. He has been an accessory to extortion and he's unknowingly uh, led a young man to his death. And so he sits here, staring at this $50 bill and, and thinking, is this really where my life has gone? Is this what it's come to? And this is a, a huge moment in his life. This is a changing point in the life of Jack Vincennes. Once bent towards greed and fame and comfort, he has been changed. And now he is pursuing what is right. He wants to see justice come. And so he spends the rest of this movie uh, seeking to solve the murder case at the, the center of the plot. And really, in a similar way, uh, each one of our hearts are utterly transformed and changed when we receive Jesus Christ. Uh, God places his spirit within us and changes our sinful, selfish, stony heart for one of flesh. A heart that has a desire and truly has the ability now to love God and to obey God, to want to walk in his ways, and that expresses itself in love for other people. He awakens really a passion within us to know him and to focus on him rather than be fixated or to have a preoccupation with ourselves that really pales in comparison to who he is. And so this should really be a great encouragement to us as we consider the Christian life. God has put his spirit within us to do his work in and through us. And that work will not fail. And so when we pray for his will to be done, we are praying personally that God would rule in and through us. That we would be obedient to his calling. We are asking God to work and to rule in and through his church to accomplish his, his purposes for it. And we're asking that the world itself would be more and more uh, conformed to his intended purposes, that it would more and more reflect him and his ways. And this leads us to the second half of the prayer. Um, Verses 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, the focus slightly shifts here from God more towards us, uh, but the subject, the, the main thrust of the prayer is still the same. It's still about the kingdom, and it's still about Jesus and his rule. Uh, but now we are praying for this to be applied to our own lives. We're asking for the blessings of that kingdom to come to us. So we start with, give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? It means that we are asking God to provide for us both our daily needs as well as a foretaste of the kingdom that's to come. Uh, Calvin states this in his commentary. He says, In this petition, we ask that the hand of God may supply us with food, uh, but also that we would have all that is necessary for this present life. We're to ask God to provide for our needs. He, He wants us to do this. And Jesus makes this just as clear later on in Matthew's gospel where he says, uh, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him. He wants us to ask because 
you know, for two reasons, really. One, it reveals our dependence on him. We need him to provide for us. And two, it reveals our trust in him and his ability to provide for us. And in both of these things, God receives all of the glory. Uh, But while this sounds like an easy thing to do, uh, we tend to do a poor job of it. If you're anything like me, I tend to have a hard time discerning what I need from what I want. Uh, And this can quickly lead to... uh, covetousness, a desire for what other people have, a desire for the newest and best thing, and idolatry, thinking that uh, I can find my satisfaction and fulfill my desires through the things that God would give me rather than in God himself. And on the other hand, uh, there's times when I don't even bring my needs to God. I kind of put my head down and go, I can do this myself. I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to meet this need. And really, this is just my pride shining through. Uh, For some reason, I think I can do it alone, that I don't need God. And in the end, I find that I'm always wrong. And not only have I struggled in vain, but I've really failed to glorify the all-sufficient God, the God who can provide all things. I failed to glorify him in my insufficiency, my inability to provide the things that I need. So ask God to provide for your daily needs and know that he is more than capable of meeting those needs. But there's another part to this petition. Uh, It's not the only thing we should recognize here. Uh, As I said, the second half of the prayer changes its focus from God more towards us, but it's still about the kingdom. And the reason that I I said this petition is about getting a foretaste of the kingdom to come, a a preview in a sense, the reason I said that is because uh, if you look at the the word here, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Well, the word daily in the Greek, it's not actually the the typical word they use for daily. Uh, it's, It's better translated as tomorrow. So it's, give us this day tomorrow's bread. What does that mean? Uh, well, I take it to, to mean that Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Um, so the next question, though, is, is what does that look like? What does it mean to, for us here at FBC to pray for God to give us a taste of the kingdom to come? Well, I think that it's asking God for a taste of the blessings we're going to receive in full when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. So it's asking for God to satisfy the needs of the poor, the hungry, and the suffering here in this community and within our congregation. It's asking God to draw a great number of students and teachers and staff at Jefferson School to faith in Christ and that we would see them join us here in this body that meets at this place. It's it's asking God to heal those who struggle with illness and disease within our congregation for his glory and for our joy. And this petition, while it reveals our need for God to provide for our daily needs, it's really a longing to see his kingdom come and for those blessings to be applied to us today. That takes us to verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Though we do not deserve it, Father, forgive us for our sins. At the heart of this petition is an acknowledgement of our sinfulness and our need for that sin to be dealt with. 
We have all sinned and fallen short of the requirements necessary for entering the kingdom of God. And yet there's hope. Jesus Christ came to deal with precisely that problem. He came and lived a perfect life. He came and he died a cursed death, a death in which he took on himself all of our sin, the curse we deserved, and yet he rose again in glory, proving his victory over sin, over death, over Satan, and showing that his sacrifice was sufficient, that it took care of it. And I say all of this because this petition is a prayer for his redemptive work, what he has accomplished to be applied to us. Even after we've trusted in Christ, this is a prayer that's asking God not to look at us based upon our own works, but based upon Jesus Christ and everything that he has done because we recognize that we're going to continue to falter and sin until Jesus returns and perfects us. But the challenge really comes when we look at the second part. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, it's not claiming that salvation comes by works. It doesn't say, forgive us our debts because we have forgiven our debtors. But what it's saying is you have to believe in forgiveness to receive forgiveness. If you don't have a concept of what it means to forgive, why should you expect to be given something that you don't believe in? And so practically, that works itself out in our lives in extending the same kind of forgiveness, the mercy and the grace that we have been shown in Jesus Christ to other people. And I pray that we would strive to be in concert with God on this, that we would seek to do what he has done for us. And that leads us then to the final petition here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, as you have saved us, God, preserve us in the midst of this evil age. The final petition in Jesus' model is a prayer for his sustaining grace in our lives, for his Spirit's work within us as we go on living here on earth, here in Pekin or anywhere else in this area or wherever else God may take us. There's a a quotation from another Bible teacher that I thought put this very well. He says, the final double-barreled request of the Lord's Prayer, I kind of like the way that he says double-barreled, the final request is a request that as the kingdom approaches, we would recognize life will not be easy. That though we want to survive as Christians and wait faithfully for the revealing of God's kingdom, we know only too well that we are frail and weak and prone to giving up. And this final request acknowledges our dependence yet again. And it asks God that he would shelter us from the testings that might bring us down and deliver us from the evil one who at times seems oh so strong as to overpower us. So we pray that God would enable us to resist temptation, to overcome sin. We ask that he would empower us by his spirit to deny sinful addictions. We ask that he would give us strength and assurance 
when the devil shoots his flaming darts of despair and doubt at us. And so to summarize, uh, we've got a summary here of our petitions and uh, how to pray these things. So starting out, one, pray that God's name would be glorified as it should be. And then two, pray for the advancement of the gospel and for Jesus' return, for him to fully establish his kingdom here. Then to pray for God's will to be done in and amongst us through our obedience, but also in the world. And then we ask that God would provide for our daily needs, give us the things that we need for each and every day here in our present life but also for a taste of the blessings to come in his kingdom. And then we're to pray for salvation for ourselves and for others and for our continued acceptance in this kingdom, not based upon our own works, but upon those of Jesus Christ. And finally, we're to pray for perseverance and deliverance from temptation and the evil one. So as I mentioned it at the beginning of this message, there's just so much here in the Lord's Prayer for us to, to think about. This is a lot of information to get smashed into uh, a half hour. And yet, uh, I want to challenge us to one more thing. You know, there's a lot here to help us in our prayers for the kingdom and for Jesus to return. But there's something else here that I want us to recognize. And uh, Calvin put this well in his Uh, words, he says, the church, we the church, are meant to take the invisible kingdom of God and make it visible to the world around us. So in other words, we should pray for the kingdom to come, for God's will to be done, knowing that God has designed the church, his people, to make that kingdom visible, if even only in part. And so my challenge is for us to seek to apply these ideas to our prayer lives, but also to seek out opportunities to put them to use in our daily lives, that we would seek to make the kingdom visible to the people of Pekin and Peoria in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our families in any ways that we can. So perhaps that is uh, you know, being a part of Kids Hope and the work that's going on over at Jefferson. Maybe it is Uh, helping those in need in your neighborhood or being a part of the food pantry or some of the other mercy ministries that we have here at the church. Uh, Maybe it's befriending the person at school or at work that no one else cares to know. Or perhaps it's just recognizing the lack of forgiveness that I tend to show or you tend to show towards your family members, towards your coworkers or your neighbors or even your friends. Maybe a good example of this would be a missionary friend of, uh, of ours who is serving with Latino students in Los Angeles. Uh, and this summer, he's worked with uh, some student leaders who came out there for the summer uh, at a place uh, at San Pedro in, in Sixth, which is otherwise known as the heart of Skid Row. Uh, and Skid Row is one of the places in our country that has the densest homeless population. And he wakes up every morning with these student leaders and he gets the opportunity not only to teach these kindergarten through fifth grade kids who live there Bible, but he also gets the opportunity to teach them art and reading and writing. 
And he, uh, he, he wrote this in his letter, and I wanted to share it with you. He says, I have no problem expending all of my energy, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, that they may receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and experience tangibly his love and grace. And so it's my prayer that we would be filled with a similar desire as that. And so I want to I close with words from that song that we sang this morning. Um, some words that I pray will uh, be on your mind and in your, be impressed upon your hearts as we leave this morning. And uh, they are, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done so that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard everywhere on earth till your sovereign work on earth is done. Let your kingdom come. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your son chose to come to this earth that in your plans you would send him here and that he would not only teach us how to pray, that he'd not only teach us how to love and to serve other people, but that he would die on a cross to take away our sins and rise again to prove that he had accomplished salvation for all who would believe and give us the opportunity to come into your kingdom. And we pray that you would work the truths of these things into our lives, into our prayer lives, and into the things that we say, the things that we think, and the things that we do, and that all of it would serve to advance your purposes for us, for your glory, Lord, and for our continued conformity to the image of your Son for our joy. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I want to close this with a a blessing from Psalm 87. So if you'd stand with me. Psalmist writes, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born here. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people's. This one was born there. So I pray that we would remember that when we come to know Christ, we are born of his kingdom, that we are God's children and co-heirs in this kingdom with Christ. And I pray that this would lead us as we leave here to go and do his work. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.